Once upon a time, there were four little rabbits. How old are you, Johnny? She asked. Sixteen. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. A wise old king once said, Of the making of books, there is no end. How true today. Of the overabundance of writing published each year, what's worth reading? The answer is simple. Read only the best. Come join the discussion on Just the Best Literature. Well, hello again, everyone. Thanks for listening in today. Well, with me in the studio today is my wonderful producer, Mr. Dan Arnfeld. Good afternoon, Dan. Hello. Glad to have you here. Also with me in the studio today is one of my best friends in literature, Mr. Grant Turgeon. Hello. Welcome back, Mr. Turgeon. Well, we have a lot to do today. (laughs) Yes, we do. (laughs) So it's going to be good. Well, on our last program, we discussed chapters 133, 134, 135, and they're all titled The Chase, The First Day, The Chase, Second Day, The Chase, Third Day. Now, these chapters focus on Ahab's insane obsession to kill Moby Dick. Unfortunately, everybody was killed except Ishmael and Moby Dick. Now, the Pequod was violently destroyed by Moby Dick. So, today is going to be a special one-hour program. Mr. Turgeon and I will be discussing Ishmael's epilogue and our favorite highlights from this wonderful American classic. Now, remember, it is colloquially known as America's Bible. It takes hours of study and rereading to come to fully understand the substance of this book. But it is worth the effort. By way of reminder, let's quickly review Starbuck and Ahab's bro moment at the top of page 616. And uh, Mr. Turgeon, if you wanted to start with that, it's it's really it's kind of touching. It is touching, and it's also really surprising. because Shocking. <laughs> because Starbuck thought about assassinating Ahab. He thought about leading a mutiny against Ahab. But here at the end... He is pleading with Ahab, please don't go on this chase. I don't want you to die. Yeah, it, it's just it's just shocking, really. And uh, to me, I think it really shows the the real genius of Melville. We all know that they're going to die, and now they're all of a sudden they're going to make up, you know, right before they die. So, so maybe we need to learn a lesson from all that. <laughs> That's right. It does seem like in those moments, whatever disagreements we might have with people seem incredibly insignificant so these two locked eyes they join hands starbucks starts crying i mean it's just completely out of nowhere but we have to remember that on this whole voyage starbuck has been pondering death and so he is sobered by the topic and he knows that their death is here yeah that's right he he's he really has a lot of insight he knows they're Something really weird and bad is going to happen. And maybe he's thinking about the next life, too, just trying to shore up all of his feuds before he dies. Yeah. I I think that's interesting uh, when you talk about he's worried about his spiritual life because that's one of my highlights that I want to talk about today. (laughs) So so anyway, it is really, really, really awesome. I think uh, it kind of made me feel good about what happened. Uh, there were when uh, actually Starbuck weeps for Ahab. And I think it also shows that maybe maybe Starbuck also saw the fact that Ahab really was a driven individual and really had this goal to, you know, to kind of get payment back for his leg that was eaten off. And uh, I, I think all of us would probably 
want to get rid of the nemesis that ate our leg. You know, so so I think that that's really kind of interesting. Well, exactly. Just even judging by the way that we act when a little critter intrudes in our homes, it hasn't really done anything to us yet. But if you see a mouse in the corner, you're going all out trying to kill that thing. <laughs> that hasn't, right. hasn't actually taken your leg from you like Moby Dick took <laughs> Ahab's leg. So we we can certainly relate. And even right now. For some reason, we have a bunch of moths in the house. Oh. And they're just fluttering everywhere. Everywhere. And it's so annoying. And so I'm just taking wild swings at them every time they fly past my head. And I miss every time. And it's just incredibly frustrating. Yeah. But you can, you can understand from that perspective why Ahab would be so obsessed with killing Moby Dick. Yeah. Well, I hate spiders. And the other day in my office, there was this big black spider. And it was up on the ceiling, like not more than two feet from my desk. And I thought this thing could jump on me. <laughs> and so I stood up and actually the spider noticed me and it started to take off down the, the side of the, and I got a bottle and it's just a plastic bottle. I went up and I smashed that thing, but he actually saw me and was going to, he was running away to say, this guy's going to get me. Well, I got him. So, <laughs> so anyway, I've woken up in the middle of the night a couple times recently and seen a big spider crawling across the ground. I've never told my wife about it, oh, no. so yeah. not worth that problem. Yeah. So this will be a test if she listens to this. That's the only way she's going to find out, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the thing is that on the chase of the third day, we'll just maybe we'll get to the point where we'll just end this this part. There was just some things I thought maybe we should talk about a little bit. But the one thing that I think comes out in this chapter that's really kind of interesting is that I think we learned that Moby Dick really did have like high intellect as the whale because it's like Ahab's planning to get him, but he's got a reverse plan that he's trying to get them, (laughs) you know. And so what happens, I I think it was really sinister on Moby's part. And again, just to talk about this before we get into the epilogue, it's like Moby attacks all the whale ships except Ahab's. And he, he destroys them. I mean, he really cuts into them. Where he de- I guess they don't sink, but he bites them enough that they're ineffective. But Ahab's isn't. <laughs> and so what does Moby do then? He knows that there's, there's Ahab. His boat is fine. And so what he decides, he's just going to show Ahab what he is. And he's got the Parsi strapped to his back. And the Parsi's dead as nails but his eyes are fully open and Parsi just stares at Ahab the whole time (laughs) now I'm telling you that gives me a chill just thinking about that that's like weird (laughs) well it's it's funny you mention the the fact that he specifically wouldn't go after Ahab that would infuriate Ahab even more he's the one man out of the whole crew that wants a confrontation and here Moby Dick is swimming circles around him. He's going after all the other boats. He eventually even goes after the ship rather than going after oh, Ahab directly. Yeah. So this would make him even so much more upset. It kind of reminds me, if you ever watch a hockey game, sometimes oh, one hockey. player gets mad at another player and tries to provoke him into a fist fight. But you can't force a guy to take his gloves off and start throwing punches. So, you know, the one player is trying to provoke him. And if the, if the other guy just keeps skating away it makes the one who's trying to fight even more angry than he ever would have been. Yeah. Because now he thinks this other guy's a coward and he won't fight me. (laughs) And it just makes him even more upset. So I I picture 
Ahab being the same way toward Moby Dick. Moby Dick is sort of obliterating his crew, but not going after Ahab head on, which is what Ahab wanted. And he's not getting it from Moby Dick. He's not getting it, no. Ahab still has his harpoon and everything ready to go. But Moby Dick just (laughs) swims right past him. (laughs) But uh, Ahab, what's really amazing is he tells all the other boats to go back home, go back to the ship. They can see the ship. And uh, he wants them, though, to fix the boats and come right back. All right. So, But I think, uh, again, Moby has an alternate plan. There was a reason why he did this. Um, one thing is I think we also notice in these pages, uh, we're at 618. Um, Ahab loses sight of Moby, but the angry whale was headed away from the whale boats and past the Pequod. So that's the other thing now is that, remember now, Starbucks on the ship He's seeing all this drama going on. It's like one of these, uh, one of these movies where the Greeks are fighting with their ships with the Romans and things like that. So, so Starbucks watching it and then he yells. He's within, in speaking distance of Ahab, but he says, Hey, Ahab, can you see this? He's leaving. He's not out to get you. <laughs> and essentially what we know Moby Dick is doing, he's gone out far enough so he can get enough energy behind him to beat the daylights out of the Pequod. Mm, interesting. <laughs> that, that, that's what's really going on. But but Starbucks says that, hey, they had their bro moment. See, Moby Dick seeks thee not. But uh, like I just put in my notes, Moby Dick was devious because he turned and destroyed the Pequod. <laughs> just bit at the shreds. It seems like Moby Dick was giving Ahab every opportunity to turn away. I mean, yeah. every... It was a three-day chase. The first day, they didn't even have any casualties. No. Everyone was at, at least healthy enough to go right back out and pursue Moby Dick the next day. Yeah. And then, you know, the second day is when it got even worse, and Fadala died, I believe. It was on the second day. Yep. And so it keeps getting worse, but Ahab keeps on it's, chasing. It's and, and so Moby Dick basically says, okay, fine, I will end your life if that's what you insist on happening. Yeah. So after... Um Ahab sees that the Pequod is destroyed, and it is destroyed, but then you know who dies. Starbuck dies. Pip dies. You know, everyone left there is gone. And uh, But then Ahab, you know, he, he really has been kind of not really believing the prophecies of the Parsi, but then when he sees the Pequod go down, if you remember, that he was going to see a hearse made only of American wood, and that's the Pequod. And then, then all of a sudden, uh, Ahab says, "Wow, you know the Parsi, the Parsi's prophecy of the wood for the Pequod was American, and so there's the hearse. There's the second hearse." Well, if you think about that, Fadala's prophecy <coughs> is really specific. A hearse is not the same as a coffin. It's like a vehicle that transports exactly. a coffin. So the whale is moving and Fadala is tied to it dead. So that's his hearse hearse, moving him around. And then the ship, it's not just that Ahab is going to drown. He's going to be taken down in a sort of a vehicle. So I think eventually Ahab got tangled to the ship, right? And so he sunk just like the ship did, I think. Well, well, actually what happened is, is he eventually got, he got strangled at first. I know on the rope, but I, I thought eventually he got stuck into the ship as that sunk, maybe. Well, the rope, he did harpoon Moby. Right. And, and the rope was getting tangled, and he knelt down 
to untangle the rope, and then it got around his neck. Mm-hmm. So actually, it was Moby Dick that killed him. Mm-hmm. But when the ship was going down, it creates that big whirlpool. So that would have taken him down. Okay, so he wasn't actually nailed to the ship in any way. No. But he did go down just like the ship did. Yeah, and okay. that's when we get into the epilogue, we're going we're gonna to hear about Ishmael. That whirlpool keeps coming towards him, but just at the last moment, guess what comes up? <laughs> coffin. His, his coffin. Queequeg's unnecessary coffin. Unnecessary coffin, <laughs> which is now the buoy. I said that right to the person that called me and said, you, you're not saying this right. So I finally spelled it. It's B-O-U-Y, but you say buoy. <laughs> I was saying boy over and over again. It should be boo-oy, but it's not. <laughs> no, it's booey. <laughs> so forgive me, all of you out there, that when I said, hey, I grew up on Life Boy Soap, so that's why <laughs> I see it. All right. So um, essentially what happens there, uh, Mr. Turgeon, is Ahab dies in his last fight with Moby. That's what that is. And uh, that happened when he tried to untangle the rope. And then it just slapped around his neck. And then, of course, Bobby just yanked it and it pulled him under. So that's pretty, pretty uh, decrepit way to die. Was he, was he, I mean, I guess the harpoon rope was tangled around Ahab and still attached to his boat as well? No, so it was, was, no, it was attached to Moby. Okay. Because so he, he, he threw that right at the end and it stuck into Moby and Moby just turned around and. So did did Ahab get carried away by Moby Dick, or did he yeah. sink in the whirlpool? Like but both, I ship? think it would say that okay. way. Yeah, because Fidala was pretty stuck to Moby Dick. I don't know if Ahab no was that stuck I to him or not. I don't think so. I, I think that Moby he pulled enough on the rope that it it choked him, hmm. and then he fell into the the swirl. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. I think that's what happened. Now, sometimes with the way Melville writes, it's a little hard to figure it out. Yeah. You'd like to talk to him and say, okay, now what did you really mean here? So, all right. I think we cleared up enough about that. And if anybody out there has any more questions, you can just write us and we can answer some of those, try and answer some of those things. I know it gets really kind of challenging when you're reading. All right. So let's talk about the epilogue. It's a pretty amazing little, it's the chapter, but it's really small. Right. It does sum up for us the aftermath of this tremendous disaster and we find out that Ishmael is the only survivor. So that's that's the whole reason why the story of Moby Dick exists because Ishmael exactly. did end up surviving but he was the only one. Yeah. And like you said, uh, the life buoy that w- used to be Queequeg's coffin until Queequeg willed himself back to life actually ends up floating up to Ishmael just in time so that Ishmael can hang on to it. And I believe it's a couple days later that another ship spots him. And that's where it gets really poetic and it comes full circle because the ship that picked him up was the Rachel. Yep. And earlier in the story, Ahab had a standoff with the captain of the Rachel, refused to help the Rachel search for that captain's Son, I think that he had two sons missing. He was yeah, he actually had two sons. Particularly looking for the younger one, I believe. But eventually the Rachel came back and picked up another orphan, it says, speaking yeah. of Ishmael. Yeah. It, it didn't it didn't find the children of the captain, it just found another orphan. Yeah. To me it uh even the way they have it printed up, they have it printed in italics, it is like 
poetry. I think I'm really glad you brought that out. I like the first line. It's only three words. The drama's done. <laughs> you know, so in other words, I think for all of you out there reading it, there's a bigger message behind this book. And there is drama, but but I think we have to face the fact that we're every human being on this planet right now is in drama. <laughs> you know, we don't recognize it, but we are. He says, why then does anyone step forth? Because one did survive the wreck. Okay, so, so he's saying one did survive. It is so chance that after the Parsi's disappearance, I was to be whom the fates ordained to take the place of Ahab's bozeman. So essentially, if you look at it, Ishmael was on the boat with Ahab. And I didn't realize that until, you know, we get to the very end of the book. He says, the last day the three men were tossed from out the rocking boat was dropped astern. So he was tossed out of the boat. And so he's in the water, you know, when this is happening. He says, so floating on the margin of the ensuing scene and in the full sight of it, when the half-spent suction of the sunk ship reached me, I was then but slowly drawn towards the closing vortex. So when the ship goes down, he was being drawn into that vortex. This is Ishmael. And he said, when I reached it, it had subsided to a creamy pool, round and round then, and ever contracting towards the button-like bubble at the axis of that slowly wheeling circle, like another, uh, I think it's Iaxion, I did revolve till gaining that vital center, that black bubble upward burst, and now liberated by reason of its cunning spring, owing to its great buoyancy, I said that right, <laughs> not buoyancy, that is definitely buoyancy. Buoyancy. <laughs> <laughs> Rising with great force, the coffin, life buoy, I said it right there, shot lengthwise from the sea, fell over and floated by my side. So it's almost like like Ishmael saying, was there some like person behind us making sure it floated right to me, you know? And, uh, well, he was he was spiraling to his death, and then the coffin burst out of the middle of the vortex, big black right bubble. next to him. Yeah, yeah. I mean that's so, perfect timing for him, obviously. Yes, so this all ties in with one of my points that we'll get to later. <laughs> anyway, um, he said, um, bu- buoyed up. There we go. By that coffin for almost one whole day and night, I floated on a soft and dirge-like mane. The unharming sharks they glided by as if with padlocks on their mouths. So, to me, I believe that, and this is my thinking, is that Melville really sees God in the picture here, and that God did all this for for Ishmael, because God wants his story written. That's what I, that's what, that's my thinking behind all of this. It's almost like at the end of Hamlet, when Hamlet is dying, and he wants his best friend, his best friend was also going to drink the drink because he didn't want to see him die and he says no you can't die you've got to live to tell my story and i think that's the same you know he he was reading hamlet he was reading all those all those plays at the same time he's borrowed some things from shakespeare here so he says but the unharming sharks they got as if with padlocks on their mouths the savage seahawks sailed with sheathed beaks on the second day a sail drew it nearer nearer and picked me up at last it was the devious cruising Rachel that in her retracting search after her missing children only found another orphan. So that's the end. That's Finis, F-I-N-I-S. That's the end of the book. So anyway, uh, I think it's a nice way to end 
but Ishmael lives. He's an orphan. And I think that has a meaning on it, too. Why did he call himself an orphan? It's because he got kicked out of the family at the very beginning of the book. Mm. That's what happened to Ishmael, right? Biblically? <laughs> right. He yeah. got kicked out of the family. So in some ways, he was an orphan. Oh, interesting. I right. know. All right. So now, everybody out there, we're done with the book. Uh, we've, we've got to the last chapter. And if you haven't read the whole book, I'm going to treat you like my student. You've got to read the whole book. <laughs> if you don't read the whole book, you're, it's your loss. So anyway, we're going to talk about our highlights. I'm going to let you begin. Go for your first. Okay. So shall I start with my 10th favorite and work up, backwards? Work to the front so that it builds a little bit of suspense. Okay. Let's do that. I'll, I'll do that. Yeah. yeah. So my 10th favorite part is chapter 40 where uh, Melville gets creative in his writing and writes this chapter as if it's a play. And it's recounting how the men are singing and dancing on the ship. And we learn a little bit about Pip, uh, the silly servant at that time as well. So I don't have too much else to say about it. I just like the way that, like you've been bringing out, Melville always seems to experiment with different forms of writing within the same book. Yes. Yeah. No, that's good because we're going to come back to that. Before the program started, both Mr. Turgeon and I said, how many are we going to pick the same? <laughs> so You have that one too, right? Oh, okay, yeah. So that's, that's one that we have in common. <laughs> that's one. All right. Now, I'm going to go, I'm going to start from one. Okay. Okay. So that you can go from 10 to, now your next one's nine. Yeah. So I'm going to go with one. All right. I want to go to uh, the biblical themes in, uh, let's go to page six. And um, I'm going to make a really bold statement here. This is the chapter six is called Loomings. No, it's not. It's not. Page it's chapter six. one. Yeah. yeah, it's chapter one. And this is where uh, he starts out with "Call me Ishmael." And again, there's that's a biblical reference immediately because Ishmael, uh, you know, was uh, also a biblical figure. He was the son of Abraham, and and when Isaac was born, his mother. Isaac's mother did not want any other brother. And he kind of did. He did not want Ishmael, the son of a handmaid, hanging right. around anymore. Yeah, but she's the one that actually started it all. <laughs> but then, but then, you know, big brother's going to pick on a little brother anyway. And uh, that happened to me with, I had two older brothers and a younger brother, and all three of them picked on me. But I'm here, and they're not. <laughs> so, but anyway, the point is, in this very first chapter, he just he just slams us with biblical themes just right up front. And let's go over, let's see, uh, I guess that would be page four. And I just want to start point, well, no, we're going to go to page six, I'm sorry. But I, I just want to show you some of these things, and uh, I'll give you a conclusion for it. But, but here we are, we're talking about loomings, we're talking about what uh, Ishmael is seeing, and he he gets frustrated, he gets depressed, and he's got to go to the sea to get rid of it all. But notice what he takes with him. He talks a little bit in the second paragraph about the Greeks, about Seneca and the Stoics, and he's talking a little bit about Greek philosophy there. But then he stops all of that, and it's almost like I feel like even Melville is saying, you know, where there's man's philosophy and then there's Bible philosophy. So then he goes, he says, 
that he says, what if some old, old honks of a sea captain orders me to get a broom and sweep down the decks? What does that indignity amount to? Wait, I mean, in the scales of the New Testament. So, so he's talking about Seneca and philosophy, and all of a sudden he says, you know, so what if some sea captain does order me to do something I don't want to do? Well, I'll do it. And that's it's fascinating, too, because philosophers are pretty much notorious for not doing any manual labor and I'm not sure. not working hard. They sit around all day talking about stuff. They and don't have any answers to any important questions. And drinking they, wine. They're just intellectual. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That's right. So Ishmael's basically taking a positive view of life on a ship and saying, okay, I'm not going to be like these vain intellectuals who are seemingly above every type of hard exactly right. work. Yeah. I'm going to work hard and realize that there are a lot of things in the New Testament that probably would have been a lot more difficult than sweeping the deck of a ship. <laughs> yeah. He goes on to say, do you think that the Archangel Gabriel thinks anything less of me because I promptly and respectfully obey the old hunks in that particular instance? <laughs> he said, who ain't a slave? But it's a bigger picture than just a slave. And what he's talking about is obedience to government. It's like there's the real philosophy there. If someone in authority asks you to do something, you do it. And that if you do it, well, Gabriel isn't going to think less of you. He's going to think more of you. you know. And, and here Gabriel is the number one messenger from God to this earth. And he takes orders as well. And he so takes, everyone answers to someone. Yeah. And he said, who ain't a slave? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> He said, tell me that. Well, then, however the old sea captains may order me about, however they may thump and punch me about, I have the satisfaction of knowing that it is all right, that everybody else in one way or the other served in much the same way, either in a physical or metaphysical point of view. And that is, and so the universal thump is passed around. So so here's what I think Melville is really doing, and, and you can agree with me or disagree with me. But I think what Melville is doing is I think he sees the world as a classroom for humanity. And I think Shakespeare did the same thing. And I think what he's saying there, he's so, I mean, he gives all biblical references almost throughout the whole book. And I think what he's saying there that humanity has to either, you know, understand the Bible. They have to uh, understand what God is. And if they don't, if they don't have God's education and if they don't think like God does, they cannot deal with the mysteries and the invisible forces on this earth. They don't. They can't deal with it. They can't deal with human nature. Uh, even on page 19, <laughs> they're talking about heads. And uh, let's just go there real quick. This is when they're talking about Queequeg and how he's out selling heads. <laughs> and at the bottom of the page, uh, you know, this is when Ishmael is getting closer and closer to Queequeg. And he said, uh, with heads to be sure, ain't there too many heads in the world? <laughs> in other words, there are too many people that will not take instruction from anybody. So to me, uh, there is that universal thump. It's going to, I mean, there's cause and effect. We know that God's God's spiritual law, the Ten Commandments, are in force. If you break them, it doesn't matter who you are, you're going to suffer. 
they all learn that. Then he goes down one one other paragraph down there. This is to me is one of the funniest, but also the most remarkable for all of us. Is he said again? This is the bottom of page six. Again, I always go to the sea as a sailor because they point of paying me for my trouble, whereas they never pay passengers a single penny that I have ever heard of, because the passengers have to pay. He says, <laughs> on the contrary, passengers themselves must pay. And there is all the difference in the world between paying and being paid. <laughs> the act of paying is perhaps the most uncomfortable affliction that the two orchard thieves entailed upon us. He's talking about Adam and Eve. They stole from the forbidden tree. And look what they did to the world. That's a lot of understanding for Melville. I mean, this this world is the way it is because of what Adam and Eve did. So I think you can you know, extrapolate that to your own life. Don't do what Adam and Eve did. If you don't, <laughs> you're going to be in a crisis all your life. You're going to pay the price. Yeah, you're going to pay the price. <laughs> No one's going to pay you. <laughs> so, so anyway, I think that there is really something behind this. And I think, I think Melville was wanting to write the novel, but I think he's wanting to, to really say, look, there's a lot of mysteries in this universe. And, and how many times does he talk about souls? How many times does he talk about the afterlife? How many times does he talk about these things? I think that everybody out there reading the book, there's, there's something really deep in this book that unless you read it, and reread it and study it, you're not going to get it. So, all right, that's my first one. Fantastic. I don't know if you agree with that or not. <laughs> I, I love it. I didn't have that on my list because I thought maybe I would just leave that to you because the biblical themes are everywhere. I yeah. didn't. I, I just wanted to be able to point to one specific page for mine. Okay. <laughs> and leave the leave the big one to you. So okay. Well, that's that's nice of you. <laughs> but we're, obviously, we're that, equals in this studio. <laughs> if, I mean, if if we're being honest, that does have to be the most important thing. That should have been on my list. And that's okay. My list is invalidated now. I'll, I'll share my <laughs> list with you. <laughs> I gave okay. it to you already. Yes. I, okay. You're number as nine. As I saw that, I knew my list could have been better. <laughs> No, okay, no, no, no. number nine is just how Moby Dick toys with Ahab, and it's the, the usual analogy of a cat playing with a mouse before eating it. Moby Dick knows that there's nothing Ahab can do to hurt him or kill him, and so Moby Dick makes the chase last for three days. He attacks all the other boats. He eventually destroys the ship, and Ahab is killed in passing, basically. It wasn't Moby Dick's main priority. He just casually killed Ahab as a side effect. And that obviously made Ahab really upset that Moby Dick wouldn't confront him head on. Yeah, I really think that that's a really good point. But the thing I think with that is that is Moby Dick, I think, is definitely a representation of Satan the devil. Mm -hmm. Because Satan is wily. I mean, he, he'll lay a trap for us. And I know, you know, there's a lot of pressure. Of course, we have another big holy day coming up. Of course, the pressure before is going to be tough. And uh, they keep saying that Moby Dick is really super intelligent. And then we read this the last time where it said all the demons that were cast down to the earth are in Moby Dick. I mean, that is a reality today. They are cast down. And look what they're doing to this world. Exactly, and even the way that Moby Dick presented himself as just peacefully gliding upon the water before the Pequod attacked, basically he lured them in. Yeah. He made it seem like 
he was the the best option, and that's exactly what Satan does. He makes his way seem like the best option, the most relaxing and peaceful option, and then you get into it. You get into the actual fight, like the Pequod found out, and it's total chaos and destruction. Yeah. We even know from the, really from the Bible, I'm sure Melville read this, but even Christ, the demons requested that they be put into the swine. And the demons are not happy with their life, and they ran over the edge because they wanted to commit suicide. But the only people that died, or the only flesh that died there were the swine. <laughs> the demons are still alive and, and kicking, I guess we should say. So, all right, so I go to my number two. All right, I think one of the biggest highlights of the book is the relationship between Ishmael and Queequeg. <laughs> it's really... To me, it's not only humorous, but it it really is something we could teach a lot of people right now. So, so I thought we ought to start at chapter three at the Spouter Inn, <laughs> and that'd be page twenty-three, I think. And uh, I thought of you when I was putting this together because I thought, oh, you're going to really want to talk about this. <laughs> so, um, notice on page twenty-three. This, of course, the owner of the Spouter Inn really played him for a fool, too, not telling him a whole lot about Queequeg. But there he is. He's waiting and waiting and waiting for the harpooner to come back from selling his heads. And uh, he finally says, I'm going to bed. I'm not waiting up for him. He doesn't know what he looks like. And then all of a sudden, then at the top of that page, he says, holding a light in one hand and that identical New Zealand head in the other. The stranger entered the room and, without looking towards the bed, placed his candle a good way off from me on the floor in one corner and then began working away at the knotted cords of the large bag I before spoke of as being in the room. I was all eagerness to see his face, but he kept it averted for some time while employed in unlacing the bag's mouth. This accomplished, however, he turned around and said, What a sight! Such a face! It was of dark purplish-yellow color and here and then stuck over with large blackish-looking squares. Yet it's just as I thought. He's a terrible bedfellow. He's been at a fight, not dreadfully cut, and there he is, here he is, just from the surgeon. But at that moment, he chanced to turn his face towards the light, and I plainly saw they could not be sticking plasters. And if you're from New Zealand or from Australia, sticking plaster is a Band-Aid. That's all it is. Because Mr. Harrison used to use it all the time. you have any sticking plasters? I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so that all those black squares on his cheeks, they were the stains of some sort or other. At first I knew not what to make of this, but soon an inkling of the truth occurred to me. I remember the story of white men, a whale man too, who, falling uh, into the cannibals, had been tattooed by them. I concluded that this harpooner, in the course of his distant voyages, must have met with a similar adventure. And what is it, thought I, after all? It's only the outside. A man can be honest in any sort of skin. So that's the beginning of, of uh, I think, um, Melville is, is really talking about race relations. Exactly. And Ishmael is remarkably open-minded, especially for someone from a couple centuries ago, just to see someone whose entire face is covered in tattoos. <laughs> In the what is this the 1800s? Is that when this book is? So yeah, that that would be even so much more rare back then. And yet Ishmael realizes, okay, he obviously comes from a different culture. 
we don't do that around here in the American Northeast. We don't tattoo our entire face like this guy. But I haven't even talked to him yet, so I'm not going to just judge him and think lowly of him until I actually understand what his character is like. Right, right. So I don't know if you ever have you ever been to New Zealand? Yes, yeah, very. So if, but just in passing, I didn't but if you see the Maoris, they really put it all over their faces. And do you think Queequeg is a Maori? He's from that. I think naturally. I think from his, uh, he was a prince. He was on one of the islands, so I think they were all. I mean, that's that culture would have been spread spread mm. completely around. All right, so I think that's funny. That first one. Uh, if we go to page twenty four. Um, I think it's really interesting. It's a good lesson for all of us. This is why I'm kind of keeping my same theme up because it seems like there's a lot of lessons that Melville thinks we should have. And remember now, it was right before the Civil War he wrote this, the American Civil War. So he saw problems in America at that time too. He says, second paragraph, even as it was, I thought something of slipping out of the window but it was the second floor back. <laughs> I'm no coward, but what to make of this head-peddling purple rascal altogether <laughs> past my comprehension. <laughs> this, that's funny. Head-peddling purple rascal. That's hard to get out. Yeah. Ignorance is the parent of fear, and being completely nonplussed and confounded about the stranger, I confess I was now as much afraid of him as it was if the devil himself who had thus broken into my room at the dead of night. So he had that nice thought in the beginning, and then all of a sudden he thinks about it some more, and he gets really scared now. <laughs> but but it, it actually gets better. Mm-hmm. If we go to page 26, I think this is the funniest line in the whole book. Towards the bottom, he says, um, What's all this? this is a, the, almost the next to the last paragraph. What's all this fuss I have been making about, I thought to myself. The man's a human being, just as I am. He has just as much reason to fear me as I have to be afraid of him. Better sleep with a sober cannibal than a drunken Christian. (laughs) So uh, I think that's the best line in the whole book. (laughs) So anyway, we don't have to go through all these. Um, I'm just going to page 31. This is also, I think, something very nice that he says about him. This is the top of the page. He says, but Queequeg, do you see, was a creature in the transition state. Neither caterpillar nor butterfly. So he did leave his home country because he wanted to learn what America was like. And so he was learning. Queequeg really wasn't stupid. And uh, I think that's a great line. Then by the time you get to chapter 10, we don't have to read a a lot of this. Um, But then uh, he calls him a bosom friend. And uh, you can read that. That's the chapter 10. And then uh, chapter 11 is uh, when they they said that they're married, you know. There, it's a it's a relationship. So, all right. So that's my second point. So you're on number eight now. All right, going down from ten, I'm on number eight, and I liked chapter forty two, page two hundred four, the whiteness of the whale. Oh, I knew you were going to and use it's that an entire, one. It's an entire chapter about normally how we think of the color white as pure and ideal. And actually, Ishmael makes the case that white is haunting it's and scary. terrifying because Moby Dick is a white whale and uh, ghosts and polar bears that are dripping with carcass blood are, are white as well. 
So are re- is white really as comforting of a color as we presume? Yeah. Well, well that's you know, my number eight. Yeah, I knew you were going to use that one. <laughs> I was, I said, oh, I got to leave this alone. <laughs> but if you really think about it, you know, the Bible does say Satan comes as an angel of light. You know, if he's going to appear to you, he's not going to appear to you with, uh, you know, horns. Right. <laughs> so I'm not necessarily afraid of white, but I guess you are. I could see his point pretty yeah. well. There's more good things that are white than bad, but there are some pretty horrifying pretty bad things. ones. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I think that that chapter, if you haven't read this, read that whole chapter because I think it's, it is, he talks about the polar bear. He talks about all these things. And yeah, you know, a little child, you would not want them to touch a polar bear because they get their arm eaten off, you know, kind of thing. And then to me, sharks are very scary. They're white. You know, they can be white. That's, that, you know, it's another one. See? So it's, it's not that, uh, that you're wrong there. Some of the apex predators are white. So it's just yeah, a little bit intimidating. It is. It is. All right. Can I go to my next one? Go for it. Number three is I love Father Mapple. <laughs> and uh, you can find that in Chapter 8. Let's go to Chapter 8. And uh, it's page 43 and 44. Page 43. Let's see. This is a big book, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. It's heavy to carry around. Okay, so for Father Mapple, there's chapter 8, and uh, 43 and 44 um, talk about his pulpit, and his pulpit looks like a ship, and he's got to climb up a rope to get to the pulpit. So he is an, he's an old sailor. Uh, it just says there on page 43, it says, Yet it was the famous Father Mapple, so called by the whalemen, among whom he was a very great favorite. He had been a sailor and a harpooner in his youth, and for many years past had dedicated his life to the ministry. At the time I now write of Father Mapple was in the hardy winter of a healthy old age. So he was an older sailor, and uh, it's a kind of a wonderful chapter where he's still, uh, he's basically the minister to all the sailors. So I could see where he could have his pulpit look like a ship, and uh then he had to climb up, and he gets in the gets up to the lectern. So, in some ways, for being an old man, he could still climb up a, a rope. He said, "I pondered." This is on page forty-four, towards the middle. I pondered some time without fully comprehending the reason for this. Father Mapple enjoyed such a wide reputation for sincerity and sanctity that I could not suspect him of courting notoriety by any mere tricks of the stage. So, as he's talking about his pulpit, <laughs> it's like is he just showing off? Climbing up the ropes, you know. He says, no, no thought I. There must be some sober reason for this thing. Furthermore, it must symbolize something unseen. Can it be then that by the act of physical isolation, he signifies his spiritual withdrawal for the time from all outward worldly ties and connections? Yes, for replenished with meat and wine of the world to the faithful man of God, this pulpit I see is a self-containing stronghold, a lofty Erbrenstein, and that was a castle that was built on a rock. So there's real spiritual themes to this, is that this guy is really a deeply spiritual person. He said, but the side ladder was not only a strange feature of the place, borrowed from the chaplain's former seafarings, between the the, uh, marble cenotaphs, 
On either hand of the pulpit, the wall which formed its back was adorned with a large painting representing a gallant ship beating against a terrible storm off a lee coast and black rocks and snowy breakers. But high above the flying scud and darkened clouds there flowed a little isle of sunlight, from which beamed forth an angel's face, and this bright face shed a distant spot of radiance upon the ship's tossed deck. And essentially what he's saying is, what could be more full of, I'm going to skip down to the end there, what could be more full of meaning? For the pulpit is ever this earth's foremost part, all the rest in its rear, the pulpit leads the world. From thence it is the storm of God's quick wrath is first descried, and the bow must bear the earliest brunt. From thence it is the God of breezes fair or foul is first invoked for favorable winds. Yes, now this is the key. Yes, the world's a ship on its passage out and not a voyage complete, and the pulpit is its prow. So there, I mean, that's, again, that's in his, that's Melville's thinking. Yeah, isn't it true that this world needs a pulpit right now? And, and actually, and this isn't just, uh, unwarranted pride. The PCG is the proud, the prowl of the world. And, uh, you know, we want people to hear our message. All right. That's my three. Very good. Yes. <coughs> my number seven most favorite moment in Moby Dick, the emergence of the shadow crew. So Ahab <laughs> has hidden his preferred whalers on board the, the Pequod for a long time. I think this is their first time out. It's chapter 50, page 250, and basically these ghosts come out from below deck and this is the first time any of the regular crew has actually seen Fadala and the others. So these, these phantoms come out and the rest of the crew is just dumbfounded at their appearance. Obviously Ahab did not get permission from the owners and the managers of the ship to bring them on, but they're here. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. So that's my number seven. Yeah, okay. My number four is chapter 16, which is about Peleg and Bildad. <laughs> Peleg is a criminal and Bildad is a false Christian. <laughs> He's always reading his Bible. And then when they, it's time to give them their money, their lay, uh, he goes to the scriptures about, you know, don't love mammon over <laughs> over the Bible. His excuse to underpay his work, his, <laughs> his workers. Yeah, I think that that's really a great a great uh, chapter to study. We don't need to necessarily go through a lot of that. So, all right, next. Okay, my sixth favorite is the two quacks. So you have Elijah prophesying <laughs> the doom of the ship, and also kind of scaring Ishmael by saying, didn't you see all the ghosts wander on board the ship? He was talking about Fadala and that uh, shadow crew. And then the other quack is Gabriel, who is a cult leader from another ship, and he pretends, or he he's, maybe he even sincerely thinks he is the archangel Gabriel, descended from heaven to be on the ship, the Jeroboam. And he brought his vials with him, man. I mean, that's, yes. that's the vowels of revelation. He's, he's going to start plagues everywhere. He's basically enchanted the crew of the Jeroboam, and they're all terrified to disobey anything he says because he's, he talks like he can bring curses from on high if they disobey him. Yeah. And just like Elijah, Gabriel also warns a lot about Moby Dick. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, you know, that's my number five, by the way. There you go. We have Sir. some overlap again. <laughs> There's our overlap. All right. So I'm going to go to my next. Uh, one thing, though, is that Elijah does reveal uh, Ahab as old thunder. You know, so he tells them, he, you know, they say, who's old thunder? But then Ishmael and Queequeg, then they, they're afraid of him. But then they, at the end, they say, oh, he's nothing but a humbug and a bugbear, you know? <laughs> so, but I think uh, number six is, gets into this chapters 26 and 27 about the knights and squires. Essentially what it is, it's a, it's kind of like a resume of all the crew members. And it's really, really pretty good. But it's related, I think, again, to the Bible. If Ahab, we know was a king in the Bible. So if Ahab is the king of the, of the Pequod, then he's got to have knights and squires with him. That's what this chapter is all about. So if you, uh, maybe we'll just go to page 124 and we'll talk about Starbuck. A lot of them, it's kind of like, uh, you know, when I, when I teach Shakespeare, I have the students, I have written out for them uh, who the cast of character is, what their job is. And it's almost like, again, Melville's borrowing from Shakespeare. This is the cast of characters, you know, in the play. Um, but Starbuck, I think, is the, is one of the most interesting. I'd say more of a straight and narrow guy. You know, he's really, he's a leader. He's not as cantankerous as Ahab, but he's also a leader. He doesn't even seem to fit in on a ship. He yeah. does, he's not one of those rough and tumble characters that you would normally picture as a sailor. This is an introspective, deep thinking, respectably fearful man. Yeah. He's a, a lot man of sailors of, don't have much fear. No, he's a man of action. That's what he is. He's, he's, uh, he knows what's right and he's going to stay with it, you know, and he's going to lead others to stay right, you know, so, but then I think, uh, one of the funniest ones is Stubb. <laughs> Stubb thinks everything's a, a dinner because <laughs> I don't know well boats. Eh, it's like having spaghetti dinner. What do you, it doesn't matter. You know? <laughs> so, so Stubb, there's really different comparisons there. Then, it goes down through the the whole list, and it's I think it's really good to uh, now. There's two chapters called Knights and Squires. So so you've got Stub, then you have Flask, um, then you have King Post, <laughs> which is the little guy, and uh, it's good to, to read them. And then uh, then there's Tastigo, there's Dagoo, you know, there's there's all of the uh, the harpooners. There Queequeg is a harpooner. Uh, then you have uh, Tashtigo, he's an Indian from Greyhead, so he's an American Indian. And uh, then uh, it says there on page 131, it says, Third among the harpooners was Dagoo, a gigantic coal-black negro salvage with a lion-like tread, and Asahiras to behold. <laughs> so there he goes, the Bible, he's given, given him the name of Asahiras. And, uh, but then there's, um, you could keep going down through there, it's really worth reading, and, and it's really something you have to study. And even uh, then, on chapter 28, they give us the kind of like the outline of Ahab and what he's like. And it really shows us, you know, that Ahab is, uh, he's like the supreme lord. He's a dictator. Uh, he's got an evil bent about him. Um we know what he does with the crew. He has them doing all kinds of will worship and all that. And so 
I think those are really important chapters to read and study. All right, so he's a. We have Ahab as the supreme lord. Um, next, you're next. All right, my fifth favorite moment from Moby Dick is the near death and resurrection of Queequeg. He has <laughs> good job crawled inside of a coffin that he demanded be built for him. And then all of a sudden, he just basically decides that he's going to keep living. He wills himself back to life from the grave, literally from the inside of a coffin. He has a positive mental attitude, so he's actually practicing a health law. Maybe even if he doesn't know it, he decides, I'm not actually going to die. And he goes totally right back to normal. And they just end up having to use the coffin as a life buoy instead. Yeah. Well, he started to use it as his... Like his Trunk. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. That's good. Okay. Um, I think another one that's really important is when Ahab hijacks the Pequod. That's the interesting chapter where you know, he gets them into the ceremony of will worship where they all put their swords together. And then that's also the chapter with the doubloon. He works on their carnal desire for gold. And it's only worth $16, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and he passes around the grog to make them groggy. Yep. So they're not in their sharpest of wits when it's time to make a decision about what the ship's actually going to do. Yeah. So he, he gets them probably a little bit drunk and greedy for money and stirs up uh, almost like a mob-like spirit to convince everyone to go and take out Moby Dick instead of doing what they're supposed to do, which yeah. is just harvest as many whales as possible yeah and the thing is he even captures ishmael i mean ishmael's right in there with it you know i think starbuck is the only one that doesn't go for it all right this is one you already talked about i love the shakespearean experimental chapters mm. 39 and 40 <laughs> they, they are really good and especially the one where they're all singing and dancing yes yeah there's no women on the ship, but they're all dancing. They're dancing with each other. <laughs> dancing <laughs> they have with... partners on the ship. <laughs> oh, oh, that's that. That's really good. Again, people out there, you got to read chapters thirty-nine and forty. I can zip through three quickly if you want. Yeah, let's do that. Okay, the... my fourth is the Stub Ambergris hoax oh. from chapter ninety-one. <laughs> Basically, he convinces. Another ship that it has been working on some stinking whale carcasses to cut the carcasses loose because uh, apparently the carcasses are going to explode or poison them to death. And so Stubb goes to talk to the French-speaking captain of the ship and totally deceives the captain into letting it go. So Stubb talks through an interpreter. Stubb is calling the, the French-speaking captain a monkey, a baboon, <laughs> a baby. The interpreter obviously does not translate that. Um, to his captain, he he just says to the captain, "Well, Stubb is telling us we will die if we don't cut these these whales loose." And so, of course, the the French want to get away from those stinking, rotting carcasses anyway. They cut the carcasses loose, and immediately Stubb goes right back and gets those carcasses for the ambergris, which is basically a sweet-smelling perfume that comes from the the bowels of a rotting whale. Yeah. For some reason, it's something sweet comes from there. God created it for that reason, though. <laughs> it's crazy. So that's my fourth. The third is when Ahab coldly refuses to help the crew of the Rachel 
find the Rachel captain's missing sons on the sea. It just shows what a maniac he is and how focused he is on finding Moby Dick. No distractions whatsoever, even if it means saving lives. It's just very evil. And then number two is related to that. It's uh, where Ishmael was rescued by the Rachel. Yeah. Is that one? That was number two. I I don't know if you had more to say. I just had one other one is Moby Dick, chapter 41. The entire chapter is devoted to revealing the nature of Moby Dick. That's really an important chapter, so so I'm done. Okay, finally, my, my number one is, is one, obviously, that you've also covered. It's the relationship between Ishmael and Queequeg, <laughs> my favorite part of the book, besides the biblical references, which I probably should have put number one. But uh, specifically, chapter 10, uh, A Bosom Friend, where basically Ishmael is watching Queequeg worship his idol, and he's counting... 50 pages at a time in a book that he doesn't know how to read. And every time uh, Queequeg counts another 50 pages, he gets even more stunned and impressed by the, the sheer number of pages in this large book. And so it's just a really funny chapter. And also, basically, they become fast friends. And Ishmael says, this is not really possible with other Americans. We don't come to trust each other this much, like basically overnight. But there's something innocent about... Queequeg. There's no deception in him. He's not uh, in debt to anyone. What you see is what you get. And I know that I'm going to have a very strong in the bosom relationship with him. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it really is, I think, one of the sweetest part of the book is mm-hmm. their relationships. Well, that's all the time we have for today's program. Now, for the next couple of weeks, we will be featuring some previous programs that are very similar to our discussion today. And why are we doing this? Well, we are in the process of finishing preparations for our next JBL series titled Winston Churchill, Soldier, Statesman, Author, Reader. So it's going to be a great series. In this series, we will be reading books about Mr. Churchill's life, the books he authored, and the books he loved to read. And we're also going to have uh, chosen a few books for our young readers so that they can participate in this. So listen for the promo for this series at kpcg.fm and I think that's expected to be out in uh, next week sometime. We will also be advertising this series on Twitter at JBLiterature1. Now remember you can always buy Moby Dick at Amazon.com and if you have not read the whole book, read the whole book and buy the book. It's really worth reading. You may be able to find a good used copy at abebooks.com. That's my favorite source of books. You may also be able to find a copy in your local bookstore. And, of course, you can also check your local library. So please write me any comments. Should I say that again? Please write me any comments you may have to jbl at pcog.org. You can follow JBL on Twitter at jbliterature1. And that site is going to be really beefed up now that we're into it. We'll be into a new series. You can also follow JBL on Facebook. Simply search for Just the Best Literature. So until next time, keep reading. You've been listening to Just the Best Literature on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG. Streaming online at kpcg.fm and thetrumpet.com.